Uh, a while ago, we returned to Mark's Gospel, and we're looking at really uh, the last few chapters, which is really just homing in on the last week or so of Jesus' life. And we've seen him triumphantly entering Jerusalem and receiving praise and a very warm welcome from some who travelled with him, but we've also seen him clear the temple, turning tables over, scattering uh, the money that the traders were using, forbidding anyone from carrying anything, um, because the temple itself had become corrupt, and in an act of judgment, Jesus kicks off. That landed him in a bit of trouble with the religious authorities. They already regard Jesus as a troublemaker, and they are trying to find ways to have Jesus killed privately. In public, they're trying to find ways of discrediting Jesus so that his um, reputation in some way amongst the people who ordinarily are hanging on his every word uh, is damaged. And so we're going to see what happened next in Mark chapter 12. And verse 13 says this. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to catch me? He asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, Whose portrait is this and whose inscription? Caesar's. They replied. Then Jesus said to them, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. So Jesus has been teaching in the temple. There's been this massive showdown a few verses ago when, like, about a big group of 70 chief priests, teachers of the law, and elders kind of march up to Jesus and say, in no uncertain terms, who gave you authority to do these things? Who do you think you are? In other words. And Jesus responded to that. Um, that was the kind of the, the really obvious confrontational question, trying to nail him. Now, when he managed to answer them incredibly wisely and cleverly, and they were the ones defeated in that little exchange, they're sending other people ahead. It's no longer the Sanhedrin, it's no longer the chief priests, but they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians. They're still behind it, they're still following the same plan. We want to have this man killed, we're going to do whatever we can to discredit him in the eyes of the people. So they sent this unusual alliance, unusual group. Pharisees and Herodians are unlikely to have seen eye to eye on many things. But in this, they are at least united. They oppose Jesus. And so they're using flattery, 
Jesus recognises what's going on. They're being hypocrites. They're being double-faced. They don't really regard him as a teacher of God's way. They're trying to flatter him to catch him off guard, to ask him a difficult question that will get him into trouble. The phrase, catch him in his words, conjures up the image of a hunt. The hunt is on. The chase is on. Jesus is the prey, and we've got these different groups kind of prowling around, thinking they've got him cornered, thinking that they're going to trap him, and if they can catch him, then later they can kill him. Uh, So they might be smiling, but it's obvious to him and to us reading it, to Mark writing it, that they're after him. It's It's kind of a game of cat and mouse. They think they're the cat, they think he's the mouse. But I don't know if anyone watched the, um, the very old cartoon now, Tom and Jerry. What did Tom always try and do? Catch Jerry. Who was sharper than Tom? Jerry. He always would manage to somehow just sidestep and uh, Tom would fall into the trap that he laid himself. So that's the kind of thing going on. They're trying to, maybe perhaps they're trying to get their own back with this question. So Jesus asked them the question, John's baptism, was it from heaven, was it from men? That's called the horns of a a dilemma, because it was impossible for them to answer. If we say it's from heaven, well, Jesus will say, why didn't you believe him? Why didn't you obey? Why didn't you get baptised? And we'll be defeated. And if we say John's baptism was from men, well, we'll be in massive trouble with the people because they regard John as a prophet. We might even get stoned. So they're defeated by the question, oh, we don't know Jesus. Liars. They think they know, they're just not prepared to say. Now they're trying the same trick on Jesus. Jesus, should we pay taxes? Should we, do we have to give a denarius to Caesar, the king of the Roman Empire? Or not. It's either or one or the other. So I mentioned last time there are two key questions for us to bear in mind as we're going through Mark's gospel. One is, who is Jesus? The second is, how do we respond to him? Considering the first, who is Jesus? I suppose the Pharisees and Herodians would want to ask a slightly different question. They're in a sense saying, whose side are you on? Are you with us? Are you with them? An either or question. Now we don't know a huge amount about the Herodians. What we gather is they supported King Herod. So as far as they were concerned, the hope of Israel all lay in King Herod. We support King Herod. Therefore, we support the Roman Empire because they put him in place. So the Herodians are kind of pro-Rome. It's likely then that they were pro-paying the tax. I don't know if it was an annual thing or what, but they had to pay a denarius. That's about a day's wage. So it's not an insignificant sum of money. On the other side are the Pharisees. They are very not pro Rome. They are, Pharisee means separated one. They would like to distance themselves and not cooperate with 
Roman authorities as much as possible. They probably didn't go quite as far as saying, we'll never pay this tax. Actually, going that far were the zealots. They would oppose Rome um, by force and refuse to pay and get in a lot of bother. So the Pharisees weren't quite as far that way, but you can see they're on different sides of the debate. Uh, And they're asking this trick question. It is a trick question. It's not genuine at all. They are hoping that Jesus will say, you shouldn't pay. Not one of God's people living in Israel should pay the tax to this king. If he says that, they can all go away, speak to the Roman authorities and say, you'll never guess what Jesus just said. I think you need to go and deal with him. And the Romans had quite gruesome ways of dealing with rebels. So that would be a way of getting Jesus killed. So it's a, it's a trick question. It's a nasty question. Actually, it's a real issue. Because they were, as we are, living in a really messy world. A complicated world. A world where things just shouldn't be as they are, but this is how things are. Caesar is in charge, whether we like it or not. We're having to work out life living under Roman occupation. We'd much rather it wasn't the case. And and therefore, there's a whole number of different groups with different ideas, a different approach. The zealots are up for a revolution. The Herodians are just totally fine to compromise and engage with Roman culture as much as they like. Pharisees are a little bit that way, but they're keeping their distance, very separate, living a a spiritual life and just not getting their hands dirty. So a complicated world. It's not simple to live life. It's not simple to live life in the 21st century. It's not simple always to know what's the right thing to do. How do we respond to people in authority? How do we respond to rulers? How should a nation be run and governed? It's not always obvious. However, there's a human tendency to try and make complicated things really simple and reduce it all down to either or. You've got two choices. You can be on this side. You can be on that side. Do you support the Reds? Do you support the Blues? If you were American, would you have voted Republican and therefore Donald Trump? Would you have voted Democrat for Hillary Clinton? And I'm sure lots of good Americans had to ponder really hard and didn't find it an easy choice. Maybe some of them did find it an easy choice. But think of all the implications, all the policy areas, all the influence it could have. And it all boils down to red or blue. This side or that side. I'm I'm not quite sure. In the UK, we can be the same way. We can think, what's the right thing to do? Who to vote for? Do I regard myself as conservative with a little c? In other words, society has changed too much. It was better how things were. We should try and conserve. That's not making jam. That is trying to keep something the same as it was things how they should be. Is that the right thing to do? Is that the right position to hold, to be conservative? 
or is the right position to hold to be progressive. The problem is, society hasn't changed enough. Things need to go further and go quicker. Um, There needs to be change. The status quo has been unjust for so many people. So we need to go for change. What's the right way? And on different issues, it might be different. But often, it just boils down to an overly simplistic choice. Conservative, nothing changes. Progressive, everything changes. Sometimes, perhaps less seriously, these kind of either-or choices can be um, experienced in other ways. Christmas Day, in the afternoon, what will you be doing at three o'clock in the afternoon? Will you be turning on BBC One? Because it's the Queen's speech. We always listen to the Queen's speech. And I know we believe in democracy, all the rest of it. Nevertheless, she is the head of state. And uh, I think she's all right. And therefore, I mean, bless her, she only gets ten minutes every year. I want to listen to what she's got to say. Come on, everybody, listen to the Queen. Or, I don't want to listen to the Queen. I don't really get it anyway. How is it that somebody can be in such a position of privilege just by virtue of being born into a particular family? I'm turning on Channel 4. So, what do you do? In my upbringing, I had some grandparents who remember Queen Elizabeth when she was a princess in the Second World War, perhaps when the royal family were held in a little bit higher esteem. So we watched the Queen's speech. I can think of other members of the family who are definitely not royalist. Definitely are Republican. I don't, who does she think she is? I don't, we should just vote for a head of state. Anyway, we'll move on because this is about Mark's gospel. Um, <laughs> but it's oversimplified. Are you royalist? Are you Republican? When I was at this, in the sixth form common room in the mid 90s, we were concerned with something of far greater importance. This was a, these were halcyon days in popular culture. And as the biggest issue for, up for discussion was blur or oasis. You cannot like both of those bands. So you have to choose. There might be some dodgy charlatans out there who didn't really like either. There'd be some very foolhardy people who might try and say that they liked both. That's not possible. You can't own up to that. It's either gritty oasis or fluffy blur. I don't know. Anyway, um, <laughs> casting no aspersions in either direction. So it's just, it's just odd, isn't it? That's this human tendency to oversimplify things that are much more rich and complicated and complex. And so what they're doing here, getting back to the gospel, um, is trying to fit Jesus into this kind of earthly mould. You're either this or you're that. It's one of two. Is Jesus the progressive, liberal, revolutionary, against the status quo, and everything needs to change? Is Jesus the conservative establishment figure trying to maintain the the way things are? And if we think in those terms, we then ask ourselves the question, therefore, is Jesus on my side? Because I've put myself over here. If I'm identifying Jesus as being on this side, well, it justifies everything I think. If I identify that Jesus is on that side, 
Well, he's one of them. He's part of the problem. I'm not going to bother even listening to him at all. And he just gets dismissed. That's what's being spoken of here. But the question, whose side is Jesus on, is actually nonsense. As a, as a man called Toppy in preaching may have reminded a few of us a little while ago, looking at the story of, of Joshua just before they went up to, to Jericho to overthrow it, Joshua has a pretty intriguing, amazing encounter in Joshua 5, verse 13. Now, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied in the NIV. More accurately, no, he replied. Well, that's not an answer to the question. It was this or that. No, it's not the right question. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servants? See, Joshua realized the one who commands God's army is the Lord. This is not just an angel or um, some heavenly messenger. This is God before him. And uh, we were reminded a while ago, when God turns up, it's not to take sides, it's to take over. That's what was happening there. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's not come to take sides with the Herodians, take sides with the Pharisees, take sides with you, take sides with me. He's come to take over and command our allegiance and draw us to himself. So the better question, who is Jesus is actually answered in this passage. And, and what we see that's remarkable in Mark's Gospel happens a few times. The truth is on the lips of the hard-hearted. People who don't believe in Jesus speak the truth about him without realising. So people mocked Jesus when he was on the cross, saying, he saved others, but he can't save himself. Well, that's effectively true. In order to save us, he, didn't, he couldn't come down from the cross. In order to save us, he needed to save, stay there. In order to save us, he chose to submit himself to the Father's purpose. They were mocking him, but they were speaking the truth. He can't. He won't. He's chosen. He's submitted. And we get the benefit. Here, we see it in the, the terms they address him with at the outset. Who is Jesus? The teacher. You teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. They weren't being genuine, but that's bang on. How do we live life in a complicated, often messy world? We come to Jesus to be taught and to follow him. Who is Jesus? We know you are a man of integrity. You're not swayed by public opinion. You're not swayed by what people think. You're not swayed by appearances. Jesus is the man of integrity, the one who is utterly consistent. He doesn't say one thing 
to the Herodians to try and get them on side and say something a bit different to the Pharisees to try and get them on side. He's not playing different groups off, among, off between themselves. He's not playing to the crowd. He's speaking the truth. So how do we learn to live in a messy world? Well, we regard him as our, as our teacher. It's not working out, is he on my side? So am I with him? Am I following him? Am I trusting him? Am I believing him? How do we respond to Jesus and how do we respond uh, to what's spoken of here in this passage? I'm going to turn to something that one of his disciples would go on to write some years later. One of the twelve was a man called Peter. And in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 17, Peter wrote this to believers in the early church who themselves were trying to work out how do we live life in a messy world? Things don't always seem clear-cut. 1 Peter 2, verse 17, Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers, or love the family of believers. Fear God. Honour the king, or honour the emperor. Quite neatly, giving three answers to the question, how do we respond to who Jesus is. The first I'd like to draw attention to is fear, fear God. What do we take away from today? The Proverbs tells us in the Bible that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of God is the, is the beginning of wisdom. There's a psalm, Psalm 14 verse 1 tells us, it's the fool in his heart who says there is no God. Psalm 128 that we looked at through the summer at one point begins, Blessed are those who fear the Lord. What does that mean? Well, Jesus was saying here, what's the answer to this trick question? Partly it's, give to God what is God's. Well, what do we owe to the Lord? What What belongs to God that we should give to him? If we've received Jesus and the salvation available in his name, what we give to God is everything. All of us, all of me, all of who I am, all of what I have, speaks of total surrender. Fear God, I bow the knee to him. There's another question that Jesus has asked in a few verses' time, and just glimpsing that at the moment, he's asked which is the most important commandment. He says this in Chapter 12, verse 29 of Mark's Gospel. The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. That does not leave very much left over. (laughs) What do we give to God? We're not giving him a tax. Oh, I just feel so taxed. When we have to say, oh, this... This 10% or this 20%, I have to give that to God, you know. Goodness me, it's a bit hard. Well, no, it's it's more than that. It's different from that. It's not a tax. It's, I belong to him completely. So I honour him with my body. I honour him with my mind. I I honour him with what seems really obviously spiritual and noble. And I honour him with things that are quite mundane and ordinary. But the fact is, I can't do anything else if... The foundation isn't fearing, fearing God. I think that the Herodians 
about whom we don't know a great deal. They were putting their hope in Herod. Possibly that means they just completely forgot God. They were, so, they were engaged in the culture. They were paying their dues to Caesar. They were putting their hope in Herod. And they were ignoring their responsibilities before God. They get a sharp wake-up call with Jesus' answer. Now, I wonder if the Pharisees do as well. The separated ones, the ones who had great regard for the law of God. They wanted to be pure and separate from a messy world. Outwardly, very respectable. Outwardly, very religious. Doing all the right things. Living by the rules. Making those rules clear to other people. Well, I wonder if there's a strange kind of hint of their compromise in this passage. Jesus says, Bring me a denarius. No respecting Jew would want to have a denarius. Why is that? Well, Jesus says, Whose portrait is on it? Caesar's. What inscription is written on this coin? If you want to know, the coin would have the words written on it, Tiberius Caesar, Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. And on the other side, another phrase that meant, in effect, our high priest. So to be a Jew believing in God and have a coin in your pocket claiming that Caesar is divine, that he's God and he's the priest, would have been horrific. So they wouldn't use a denarius. They had other copper coins with no one's picture on and they'd use that. So Jesus, Jesus didn't have a denarius. He didn't have that amount of money. So he asks them, you bring me one. And actually they have to acknowledge, yet whatever I might say my position is, look, it's here in my pocket. In the one sense, he's saying, look, you already benefit, like it or not, you already benefit from having Caesar as lord over this land. You're using his money. So give back to him what he um, requires of you. But for these Pharisees, it speaks of a bit of a disconnect. And this is what can happen, I suppose, when we get religious, but we don't draw closer to Jesus in the process. We can have a passionate debate about something. We can be clear on what our position is. And no one, everyone knows where we stand on the issue. But actually, in, in private, we're compromised. We, we've got it in our pocket. I wonder what, what in that sense do we have in our pockets. We might claim one thing, but actually do another. And Paul writes in, in, uh, in Romans 2, you who pass judgment on other people, you do the same things yourselves. That's where legalism, that's where the law leads us. Being judgmental, but actually being compromised. That's not the way of the Lord. We fear God. And we're determined, therefore, not just to hold a position, not just to tick the right box, but actually to have our lives shaped and affected by what we believe that Jesus teaches us in his word. So we fear God, firstly. Secondly, honour the king. So give to God what is God's. Actually give or render to Caesar what is Caesar's. 
the NIV translation might not be most helpful at this point. They're asking the question, should we give or shouldn't we give? As though they had a choice. Jesus is in a sense saying, no, give back to Caesar what's already Caesar's. Pay up. Saying this is not, this is not a choice. This is an obligation that you have of, as citizens to pay this tax. It's not therefore either or. Either we're loyal to God or we honour the king, even Caesar. It's both and. Being loyal to God will involve submitting to authorities that govern a nation that we live in. Whether we think those authorities are completely godly, righteous, or not. So, uh, Romans chapter 13 and verse 1. Paul writes there, Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Does that mean that God approves of absolutely every single ruler in the world? No, clearly not. They don't please him in every regard. Nevertheless, they've been established by him. And because we fear God, we recognize that it's God who can remove them, as well as establish them. Therefore, what what do we give? One thing we give is Taxes, not taxis, as my son thought. Who's Caesar? He's got a taxi. Oh, I might have to explain a little bit more later, but then he is only three. Um, Paying our tax. Now, maybe that's not something that we think a great deal about, because for those who might be in employment, get a paycheck through, deductions made before we ever saw the money in our account anyway. It's done, it's it's dealt with, it's gone. For those who are self-employed, perhaps, actually, yeah, there's the, the rigmarole of, when it comes to that time of the year, filling out a tax return and sending it off. Um, so it's not necessarily something that we think a huge deal about. 1 Peter 2 verse 17 that we looked at earlier on said, give proper respect to everyone. Proper respect there has the sense of being prompt, being on time. And what it means to honour the king, honour the emperor, is when we owe something... We're prompt, as prompt as we can be, in paying what's required of us. Again, because we could be like the Pharisees, with a bit of a a disconnect. We could be very spiritual, like, God, what would you have me give to you? I'll give you anything. But I'm not giving to the state, or I'm not, I'm not giving to the authority. That's just secular. That's worldly. That's just on the earth. I'm part of the kingdom of God. So I'll do spiritual things with my money. But I'm not doing that. I'm not giving to them. If I do have to, I'll do it begrudgingly, reluctantly, and quite slowly. But we're not to be like that. We're to be. God's will for our lives is that we are good citizens. Now maybe being a good citizen in the UK looks a bit different from being a good citizen in Zimbabwe, a good citizen in Russia. There are different challenges in different nations of the world where this gets worked out. Nevertheless, the overriding principle, whichever nation we're from and wherever we're living, is 
the gospel's at stake. Therefore, because I fear God, I will honour the, the authorities that govern this land. What if I don't respect them, though? I give taxes, but I'm not giving respect. Well, looking back at Romans chapter 13, and this time verse 7, we'll see what uh, Paul has to say about it as well. Paul writes a little bit later on in that chapter, give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. And what's interesting there is respect is listed as something, and honour as well. Respect is listed as something that we owe. In today's day and age, respect is something that somebody might earn from us. Maybe they'll deserve it. I will respect them if I approve of them, if I think they're doing a good job, if they earn my approval, if they earn it, I will respect them. If they don't, I won't. I remember uh, growing up in school, around about the same time that the Oasis blur debate was uh, taking place, I was doing a, uh, a music GCSE, and a friend in the class had a deal with his dad. Father and son had come up with an agreement together. Son, this wasn't me, this is my friend. I promise, a friend of mine. No, uh, son, you have to respect all of your different teachers, but you don't have to respect your music teacher because I don't think that much of her either. And so he, he would totally play up. Was she the best teacher? I don't think so. She knew her stuff. She was impressively skilled and able musically. Perhaps she wasn't the strongest presence in the classroom. But if we fear the Lord, we should never arrive at that same conclusion, that same deal. You have to respect people, but you, can, you don't have to respect them. Don't respect her. Don't respect him. There's a different category. Don't deserve it. Doesn't know what he or she is doing. We mustn't go in that direction. What if I don't think that they should have the job, though? Do I have to respect them? Do I have to honour the person who I, quite frankly, don't think is qualified? Some mistake has happened somewhere. I think the votes should have been recounted. I'm sure there was some dodgy deal, some dodgy handshake. They managed to get the job, but they're not qualified for it. They're not very good at it. There are lots of problems. So I won't respect them. Is that appropriate? Well, I'd invite you to consider David's response to King Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 24. By this time in David's life, David himself has already been anointed to be the next king. Bear that in mind. By this time, Saul, who is currently the king, has already been rejected by God for all his compromise and bad decisions and disobedience to God. Bear that in mind as well. 
to see how does David respond to Saul. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of Engedi. So Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. Okay, now bear in mind that Saul who has attempted to kill David before, though David has never done anything wrong against him, is now hunting him down with 3,000 chosen soldiers. Bear that in mind. How does David respond? He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. We don't need to dwell on that. David and his men were far back in the cave. The men said, the guys who are with David and support him, this is the day. The Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David was conscience stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lift my hand against him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. Could have been so tempting, so appealing. David, you're anointed to be king one day. Saul has been rejected by God for quite a while now. Saul is hunting you down to kill you and God has said this. Therefore, the obvious thing is run him in. Strike first. Kill him and become king yourself. But David, a man after God's own heart, feels mortified with himself for having just snipped off the edge of his cloak. Why? Look, I think it's because David feared God. David feared God, therefore he could honour this unrighteous man. So I believe that God can deal with him in God's timing, therefore I can be a man of peace, not bloodshed. I think it's another either or that we can, we can kind of default to. In some really difficult hypothetical scenario, what's the right thing to do? Be totally passive or aggressive. Well, I can't, I can't sit over here because something so significant is, is at stake. I'm going to jump all the way over to the other side and take up arms and run them in. And we can kind of bounce from one extreme to the other. I don't think David is being passive. I think David is fearing God and trusting the Lord and trusting his timing. You read through the book of Kings. How many times did it work out well when somebody assassinated a king and then became the king in his place? Not very many. We trust God. We don't believe in anarchy. So we honour the king, whether he's a righteous king or not. Thirdly, and finally, and quickly, how else do we respond? Love the family of believers. Love the church. Love God's people. Jesus could say to Simon the zealot, Come and follow me. Simon the Zealot, who hated Rome. He could also say to Levi, a tax collector, 
someone who was collecting money for Rome. Come and follow me. And then he could go up a mountain and pray, come back down and say to those two guys, I'd like you to be within, in my closest circle of disciples. I mean, that's a bit tense, isn't it? I wonder what the discussions were that they would have. But both those guys decided, actually, my first allegiance is to Jesus. What defines my identity now is that I'm following him. They might still have had slightly different political views. But actually they could see, but we're part of the same family. And we're with God's, we're among God's people. And we're following Jesus. I don't know that they necessarily had to have precisely the exact same view. But I think this made a big impression on them. Give to Caesar, pay to Caesar what is his. Give to God what is his. We do live in a complicated, messy world where things aren't always clear-cut and easy to work out. Should we vote red? Should we vote blue? Who should be ruling? Are they good? Are they people of integrity? Of course, there are so many issues. So complicated. How do we live? Well, we live by trusting the teacher. And the one who is our teacher is Christ. He's the man of integrity. He's the one who can lead us in the way of God. Not just so that we have some noble, highfalutin views, but actually so that we can live life. It's real. It has an effect. It changes how we are. It's practical. It's not just theoretical out there up somewhere. It makes a difference. And we want to, the world to see what the kingdom of God is like. Therefore, as well as fearing God and honouring the king, we want them to see we love each other. We don't just love the person who's a bit like us, tends to vote the same way, got the same views, from the same side of the tracks, same life story. No, we can put our arms around a zealot and say, welcome, <laughs> great to have you here. We can put our arms around a tax collector and say, it's okay, you're safe amongst us. That should be our, our vision for church life. If we've received Jesus as teacher and Lord of all.